Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Grodnick, and this is Moving Up, a podcast about secrets to success, struggles along the way, and life in general. Today in the pod, two awesome guys, Orlin Davies and John Richmond, two hardworking guys that just started a search fund. We chat about what a search fund is, how to start one, and what makes one good. Super interesting and actionable conversation here. So let's hop into it. Welcome. Hey, Thank thanks for having us on. I have two guests today, so super special podcast. John and Orlin, you guys are our partners and you, you've, uh, you're partners in the search fund business and you'll get into all of what that entails and what that means. Um, and this is going to be an exciting conversation. So thanks for hopping on. Yeah, thank you for having us. We're excited to jump into it. It's a very exciting part of our careers and uh, can be more thrilled to be talking to you today. Cool. So uh, starting off backgrounds, I guess, Orlin, let's, uh, let's get yours. Yeah, definitely. So grew up in New Jersey. Well, I typically say the greater New York City area, so I don't have to admit from being, uh, being from New Jersey, but uh, I was pretty far from that infamous Jersey Shore. Uh, Went to school at the Claremont Colleges, double majored in econ through Claremont McKenna College and computer science through Harvey Mudd. Started my career out in the traditional finance sort of way, uh, doing investment banking, sell-side M&A at a shop called Intrepid. Uh, from there, went to the buy side, working for a firm called Clearlight, a lower middle market private equity fund, pretty much exclusively on acquiring founder-owned middle market businesses. And after Clearlight, I broke off and started doing my own consulting, helping companies implement FP&A systems, uh, BI systems, and a little bit of cap raising uh, and had the opportunity to invest in a handful of deals myself uh, before launching our search fund, which is Athenaeum. So that's my background in a nutshell. Cool. Yeah. Sounds like a super relevant background for this. So that's, that's nice. Okay, John, your turn. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of similarities to Orlin, uh, which we'll dig in further, but uh, originally born and raised in Southern California in Dana Point. Um, back in LA now, so love the Southern California area. Um, like Orlin, I studied economics at the Claremont Colleges, um, attended Pitzer College, and was a Robert Day Scholar at CMC. Um, from there, started my career in investment banking, largely focused on sell-side mandates and capital raising. Um, I think my banking time was interesting and, and fun, similar to Orlin's in that you know, we were exclusively focused on working with family and founder-owned businesses. Um, you know, you don't really realize it in the moment, but now looking back, you know, that's, that's pretty transformative, um, to the rest of my career path. Uh, so naturally from being in an analyst program, you decide what you want to do next. And if you want to stay in banking forever, uh, you know, I was really interested in companies and, and more on the operating side. And, and that led me to a career in private equity, joined a $300 million fund in the Bay area called Spanos, Barber, Jesse and co. Essentially, right after the close of the first fund, uh, we were, again, exclusively focused on investing in family and founder-owned businesses, um, mainly service businesses, but uh, we have two product-based businesses as well. Um, so was there for the better part of four years, um, invested across a range of 
different industries, was able to get board level experience, and then, you know, left Spanos Barber, Jesse and Co. SBJ to launch App and AM. Super cool. Okay. So yeah, you're right. You, you guys do have similar backgrounds. Were you friends in college? We were. Uh, we met through this scholarship program, which provides some coursework and finance, leadership activities, networking opportunities, and they also pay for the last two years of college. It was the Robert Day program. Um, and I mean, fantastic opportunity. And it, you know, met, uh, met John, a, a great friend through it. Uh, when John was working up at, in uh, San Francisco at his private equity firm, his family was still down Orange County. So every time uh, John would come back to visit family, we'd catch up, think about deals that got us excited. We realized we thought pretty similarly about some of these. And we, in fact, led a, a seed round for a company at the beginning of this year. Um, and that sort of kicked off our, our partnership and working together. And uh, it's been fantastic. It's great working with someone that I enjoy working with. And we think similarly enough on deals, we have different deal experience coming from different funds. I think John's focused a lot more on some healthcare verticals that I'm less experienced with, whereas I focused on some more techie things uh, that John's less experienced with. But um, yeah, met, met an undergrad, known him for the better part of a decade at this point. Cool. So yeah, uh, get us up to speed on like how you guys come together to, to do the search fund. You said you invested in a seed stage business and then you kind of start to think, oh, maybe we can do more together. Yeah, I'd, I'd say, you know, we've sort of been comparing notes uh, from our PE time you know, over the last several years. I have a lot of ties to Southern California, as Orlin mentioned, and so I'm back here often. Uh, on a lot of weekends and, you know, slept on Oren's couch. We talk about deals, what we like, what we didn't like, what we think is working in PE, what we think is not working and, you know, how maybe our skill sets are different and, and maybe we can add some value to the right business. Um, and then we ended up investing in the seed round together and leading it where the both we're both the largest shareholders outside of the founder. Um, and I said, I'm an observer of that company and we sort of co-managed that deal. That was at the, you know, December, close of January. Um, you know, and from there, it was like, hey, we really like doing this. We worked at our private equity funds and and we have a decent background for the first chapters of our career. You know, now's the time to go out and, and do it and find the right, you know, special business for us to invest 100% of our time in our own capital. And um, yeah, so, so launch from there. Cool. And that's where this search fund comes from. So Orlin, tell us, tell us what that is. Yeah. So search fund, it's a unique sort of asset class that started out uh, fairly recently in the 80s out of Harvard and Stanford. Um, effectively, what happens is you as a pair, more often than not, but sometimes a single uh, entrepreneur will go out and acquire a business after having raised a little bit of capital, typically in the 500K to 700K range to cover your operating expenses for about two or three years um, while you go out to search and try and find a business. So you first have to raise the capital, then you are sort of going out there searching for an exceptional business you close it and uh, it's an amazing opportunity because after you close it, you'll assume management roles at the company. That's sort of the fun part where you get to spend the next five to 10 plus years creating value in an exceptional sort of uh, business. So cool. And I mean, it's basically you're doing a startup and then, but then you're going to go buy a company and then it's going to transform from being a startup to being an operating kind of thing, but you get to get paid along the way. You know, most startup founders start something and don't get to raise money right right off the bat and start getting a salary. So it's a it's a unique thing. So like, how do you go do that? Like, who who gives you money for to do something like this, John? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's a great way to put it. In that you know, we're certainly taking a lot of risk. We're leaving our you know um, cushy private equity world um, to to go take a bunch of risk and find one company and and try to run it ourselves. Um, so 
So we didn't take the specific search fund classes at HBS or GSB. Uh, we kind of approached it as how, you know, basically our experience would kind of mandate of how we'd run a fundraising process and how we'd meet investors. Um, so we certainly went broad. We met a lot of really, really interesting people. Um, we kind of think about the world in three interesting classes and we wanted to build our cap table reflective of that. So we reached out to and had conversations with all the major fund of funds um, that are, you know, private equity funds with small investment teams specifically focused on investing in search funds um, to give you the backing, the resources and ability to write big checks. There's uh, a handful of very active family offices in our space um, that we connected with and, and raised capital from. And then, you know, one of the most interesting segments uh, of investors within our space is ex-searchers or ex-operators, someone who's been a CEO for 20 years or someone who bought a business and, and grew it for 10 years and lived in our shoes. And I'd say that's the last third of our capital that we look at them as mentors and big brothers who essentially have been there and, and done it before us. Um, yeah, so I'd say we're, we're fortunate in that we were able to raise capital efficiently from those three different groups of investors, and they all bring, you know, different uh, value added, you know, tools to the table um, to, to get our fundraising done, you know, we're certainly on the larger end of a, of a fundraise. Um, and, you know, during a global pandemic, and, you know, all the uncertainty and, in you know, if you think about March, April, May, and then, you know, we're fundraising in uh, July and August, uh, very uncertain time. So really excited to get it done and have the interest that we had. Yeah. Congrats. Um, obviously, uh, in, you know, when you, when you, when you, when you have a startup, obviously investors are investing in primarily you, but also maybe equally. So the opportunity and the, the market, uh, with this, uh, it's pretty much, they're just, just investing in you. So it's like, when you get no told, no, it's like, well, yeah, they're actually like saying they don't believe in me. So that, that's got to be tough. Yeah, yeah. There, there's certainly a lot of very um, accomplished and smart searchers out there for, for investors to pick from. Um, you know, so our peers, which are, you know, many are very collaborative and we've learned a lot from, you know, we have a ton of respect for it. But yeah, it's, it's certainly tough taking taking those, um, especially, you know, you really like certain investors. You, you could see the partnership and for whatever reason, uh, you know, they decide to pass on. Um, it's kind of like you just have to take your lumps and, and keep going and not 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 give up at all. The fundraising process was uh, super exciting, something that we've never done before. A lot of up and downs and um, just met really incredible people and had, you know, every conversation under the sun that you could think about. It was, uh, it was a fun time and I'll always remember that. I'd add on to that. Uh, I think part of the reason why we're accessible during this kind of crazy time to raise capital is crafting a good story around ourselves and what we're looking to do. So I think a big part of that, John actually, uh, I can let him jump into it in a second, but started his own company before uh, deciding to go to college and, and successfully exited it. So we had a little bit of entrepreneurial experience, which I think the typical PE uh, background doesn't have. I also started a consulting firm previously. So we brought that to the table with a ton of deal execution experience. And then when we were thinking about COVID specifically, how we were addressing investors' concerns around that, we thought about the types of businesses that we want to invest in. And we actually think it's a, a fantastic litmus test to determine how, str how strong the customer relationships are and how truly recurring revenue, uh, the, the quality of the recurring revenue for those customers. So with this crazy shock to the system, you're seeing plenty of businesses struggle. And those aren't the kind of businesses that we want to chase after. Our first and foremost, uh, mandate and investment criteria is recurring revenue uh, that's contractually recurring. And so the businesses that were 
sourcing right now, we're focusing on businesses that are uh, prospering and growing despite COVID. And so we think that COVID in some ways is actually fortunate for us going through this process because you're able to see in a recession the strength of those relationships for any asset. And if the company is growing through this time period, you have a lot more confidence that this company will survive any other sort of swings. And so I think that message resonated fairly well uh, with investors and was a little bit different than some people who were saying we want to buy you know, business at a discount because it got hit by COVID. We're saying something a little bit differently where we're using COVID as a little bit of a litmus test to find pretty exceptional businesses that are growing despite it. Yeah. Well, very cool. That makes, that makes great sense. So yeah, you got to sell the, uh, the timing as a, as a good opportunity. Um, so, so Orlin, so you raised some money this summer and then what happens? Like what's the next step? Yeah. So we closed uh, fundraising, I mean, October 1st. And so what John and I decided to do is we're actually delaying the draw of our capital until the first of the year. And we're using this first three months to ramp up our back office operations. Everything from deploying our IT stack, uh, our CRM email automation program and list generation sources to ramping up our intern program. We're happy to make our first hire a, a wonderful MBA student um, who's been fantastic. And then setting up office space and all of those resources to guarantee our success. And then we're doing a lot of testing right now with our initial email campaigns. So for this first three month period, it's the time where we're not on the clock, trying to you know, sprint to get a deal closed. We're able to try things uh, that are a little more creative in our sourcing. Um, so we're doing everything from sending FedEx packages to companies that we're particularly excited in that has a little investment thesis about their industry, uh, a custom written letter about why we're very excited about them in particular. And then we're also pairing that and folding that into sort of a nine step email campaign as part of our outreach. So we're setting up all those processes right now to sort of make it so day one, when we draw our capital, um, you know, it's a day like any other. John and I wake up, have a couple, five or six cups of coffee and just uh, continue working. I love it. So John, can you go a little bit more into the, into the weeds and the nitty gritty of like, how you're finding companies, how you're evaluating them, how you're reaching out to them, you know, email and FedEx and stuff, but, but like, get, like walk us through, you know, someone who has no clue about how to do this. that's really interested about like, you know, how they could think about starting, starting to do something like this. Absolutely. And I think this hits on, um, you know, a lot of areas we're testing, but fundamentally, you know, are people industry driven, thesis driven, or are people, you know, are you trying to go really, really broad and send out 250 emails a day with the three percent response rate of, you know, do you have a business? Is it for sale? Do you want to talk? Um, we're, uh, you know, right now what we're testing, I'd say we are, you know, closer to the thesis driven industry driven search. You know, we've done a lot of work in, in one specific space and we're reaching out to, you know, call it, you know, we're sending, you know, maybe we're, we're trying to talk to 40 different businesses, uh, in that space and go really deep and be very thoughtful and know, know the founders names and, and where they went to school and talk about their businesses and key hires, um, you know, in those initial conversations versus, you know, what does your business do? Um, and then, you know, we sort of have a couple of different playbooks like that, that we're kind of layering on. Um, so for us, it's, it's leveraging that industry research and these industries are, are spaces that we've been talking about and looking at for the last four years or so. So it's sort of natural for us to kind of roll that in. Now, the, the new experience and that we're getting up to speed on is, you know, different from being at a private equity firm is, all right, so now how do we generate uh, a great list and how do we get contact information and how do we, you know, reach out initially and, and, and draft those first emails 
of, you know, we really like your business because X that, you know, is going to catch a founder's eye because, you know, they're running their business and they're busy and they probably get um, solicited all day, every day. So how do you stick out from that? Now that is, um, we're basically putting our email marketer, you know, direct marketing um, sales executive hat on to try and be very efficient and, and learn that job in, you know, two weeks versus uh, someone who spent the last few years doing that. Um, yeah, so, so I like it. I think we have a little bit more of a bespoke approach. Um, but we're instead of, because there's two of us, we're able to get leverage and focus on a few different industries very deeply versus spending two years in one industry and, you know, striking out or not striking out. Um, so I think, I think that's a, that's a little bit different. Um, yeah. So I don't know if you want to get into some spaces, you know, why we like them or, or not, but, um, you know, that's what we're doing every day. Yeah, I think just real tactically, if that was where we're going with this, we have a nine-step email campaign that we're doing through an email automation service provider called Reply.io. It's fantastic. So we pull the list generation and that process through a bunch of manual processes. We're going to industry association websites. We're looking at, uh, for some of our techie deals, there's plenty of platforms that review different uh, software providers or MSPs and things like that. So that's how we do our list generation. We leverage some outsourced work through the likes of Upwork to actually pull emails and things like that. Uh, and then we custom write all these email messages that have, you know, there's a couple of fields that we fill in. And then over the course of a 30 day period, we touch them nine times. And so the first touch is, you know, an introduction to us about why we're excited about them and their industry. We follow up uh, within the first day or so with a LinkedIn connection and, and message. And then we hit them also with a FedEx package that's time to hit with the second email, which is the fourth step of the campaign. And then we sort of have a couple of uh, touches over the next uh, 20 odd days uh, trying to you know, get them to engage with us. And we've seen the first message oftentimes doesn't get a great response, but our second message is uh, email message or our LinkedIn messages because we've already sort of you know, introduced ourselves to them or getting much higher response rates. So we're targeting to get hopefully a 20 plus percent response rate over the course of that campaign. Wow. Yeah, no, I, I, that's so cool. I love how you're hitting them on so many different mediums, email and LinkedIn and FedEx. And it's like a, it's like a all out uh, blitz. That, that's awesome. <laughs> yep. So I guess you can, you can answer this question around like, you know, a little bit more on the industries, but like, what do you look for in these companies besides recurring cash flows? Like what makes a good search fund acquisition target? Yeah, ha happy to take that one. And I think um, a a really interesting business in a growing industry, you know, the industry growth is is key. But you know, fundamentally, aside from you know the core boxes of great cash flow, good margins, no customer concentration, you know, all the fundamentals you'd want to see in a business across industries um, to to make an investment in high margin, you know, yada yada, the the fundamentals of things that could blow up a deal. Um, you know, aside from that. We think of businesses and industries in in segments that you know are going to go through some kind of transformation, and there's some opportunity to meaningfully pivot or grow or transform the business from a you know founder-owned you know steady growing business to something that's you know hopefully really interesting and has the opportunity to become a real enterprise one day. Um, you know, I think that that's why we're doing this. Um, just just if we cannot fundamentally you know add a value and transform and grow a business it's it's probably the not, not the right investment for us um doesn't mean it's not a good cash flow investment or um you know lower growth opportunity but but that's kind of our big you know 
broad bar across our segments of what we're looking what we're looking for. Cool. And then once you hopefully find something here in the next, you know, hopefully sooner than than, than later, uh, what happens? What happens from there, Orlin? Yeah, definitely. So John and I, during the diligence process, will put together a sort of plan uh, that details the different value creation uh, levers that we can pull. I think the first hundred days or so, I think John and I are drinking from the fire hose, trying to learn as much as possible. I've seen more than enough private equity transactions to see that you know when a new owner comes in and tries changing too much, uh, it can actually hurt the business. So I think the very first uh, part is trying to figure out what needs to change, understanding the culture of the company, understanding who the key players are and things like that. And then over time, you start improving efficiencies. And so there's a couple of specific things that John and I have a, a, a ton of experience in through automating reporting, through better systems and processes, building out a management team, uh, building out a sales team is often a very common playbook at this size company. Uh, oftentimes when you're in this lower middle market, two to five EBITDA, they don't have a very well-developed sales process. They typically don't have a sales operations person who's managing uh, all the tech stack for them appropriately, deploying Salesforce to maximize data capture and lead generation. So thinking through the different part, uh, value creation levers that we can pull during diligence. And then the first bit, we're sort of learning as much as the company and gradually starting to change things. And then sort of as you get towards the latter half of that first year, you're executing a lot more on uh, implementing systems and processes, professionalize the organization, build out your sales team and build out your management team as well. So there's, it depends obviously on the specific company we're talking about, but those are sort of the, the initial period of changes that we'll be doing. Cool. And then, and, and John, uh, I mean, you don't, you have no idea where you're going to buy this company, right? Like it could be anywhere. I mean, it could be anywhere in the U S I mean, I assume you're only, only looking in this country, but like you guys are prepared to move wherever. And then I assume you've already had the conversation of like, who's going to be in charge of, of what task at the company, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so that is, that is exciting part. Um, you know, I think Orlin and I, again, are well suited for this. We're both uh, single 30 years old, if there's ever a time to move for a great opportunity and for a great company, you know, now's the time to do it. Um, so correct. We're looking, um, across the United States. We actually got introduced to one deal in Canada, but, uh, primarily United States. Um, and then, you know, in terms of roles, that's, you know, company specific and what that, that company needs from us, um, and how, how we kind of, divvy up responsibility, but essentially we think of ourselves as co-CEOs um, in, in terms of title when we when we join this new business. And then whether, you know, who leads um, the CFO role, if they already have a CFO or that's all company specific on, on the management team we're growing. You know, I'd say back to Orland's point on what happens first 100 days, first 360 days, it's just uh, learn the business, uh, don't mess it up. I think that's our biggest goal. We get through the first year of our acquisition and we don't mess anything up. We don't have huge turnover. We don't destroy a culture. I, I count that as a win, even if it's uh, maybe single digit growth. And then from there, you know, we can, we can really, um, step on some of the growth levers, but for me, it's be humble and don't mess up what a founder, you know, we bought that business because they were doing a lot of things, right. Not, not because, um, you know, they were doing a lot of things wrong. I think always keeping that in mind is, is, uh, important. And sometimes, um, you see that often get messed up in transactions. Just to add to that point, I think John and I've seen, uh, some of our best investments in our private equity days. I can think of two at Clearlight that were 10 X returns were in tertiary markets. And so at this area of the market that we're playing in these lower sort of sub scale businesses for a private equity firm to deploy capital against, you'll see oftentimes a little bit of discount on multiple. Um, 
And so that obviously drives returns and, and what have you. And so I think we're both very willing for, you know, the right business to, to move to tertiary market and build it out to something. Uh, I think the one, you know, lens that you have to keep in mind, though, when you're thinking about moving somewhere is, is this a geography where you can recruit top tier management going forward? So we want to balance those two things. But, you know, at the, at the end of the day, we want to find the best possible business. Um, and that might be in, you know, <laughs> in a tertiary uh, market. Right. And and then the last piece of this is Orlin. I mean, you're not going to be moving to Omaha for the rest of your life. Like these are acquisitions with the intention of buying it, improving it, running it and selling it. And then you've done that. And then like fast forward, I don't know however long that that takes five, five years or something. And then look, now you're the you've been the CEO of a company, you have bought a company, you've sold the company. It's like, yeah, your next job is not going to be anything but a CEO job. So it's like, it's like a, could be a big leap forward if everything goes according to plan. Yeah, no, I, I think that's exactly right. I think one different, uh, different point of differentiation between the search fund model and private equity is that we have a lot more flexibility with our investor base to do, you know, we can structure the transaction more flexibly. We can have, uh, you know, gradual handoff between the prior management and us. But one area that the differentiation comes into play is around the exit timing. We've seen businesses and the hallmark case is the Assurian deal where the, the management team stayed on for far in excess of the standard investment horizon of five years in private equity. And so exit timing is always a difficult thing to determine, but how the only right answer that I think I've seen in, in, in my experience in private equity is the right time to exit is when you think the business has grown beyond your skill set and there aren't clear value creation drivers that you think you can execute upon. And so if we're in a business, you know, at the five-year mark and we're still finding lots of room to improve the business and grow uh, even at a, at a significant CAGR, uh, we'll continue executing on that. So we have the flexibility to stay in the company for, you know, well beyond the typical private equity investment life cycle. Very cool. Uh, I mean, I, I think that gets us through the story, guys. Uh, I don't think I'm, I'm missing anything unless, unless you guys do, but this was, uh, this was fantastic. Yeah, I think, I think that covered a, a lot of what we want to talk about. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having us on. I'd say, I'd say the, the other thing maybe to mention in, in closing here is that, you know, Orlin and I, by not being MBAs uh, and, and fundraising through this crazy economic time, uh, we certainly learned a lot. And one thing we learned is just how collaborative the space is. We talked to probably 30 plus searchers or, you know, who either um, just closed their fund, were searching or, you know, closed their deal or exited. And, um, you know, how welcoming the community has been, uh, even given our, you know, somewhat non-traditional backgrounds for this. And, you know, we definitely want to make ourselves available to anyone out there who's listening to this and thinking about this model. They want, they know in their hearts, they want to be an entrepreneur. They are an entrepreneur. Maybe they don't want to start a business from zero. Um, you know, we definitely want to make ourselves uh, a resource to anyone and everyone out there. Um, because I was just blown away of how people picked up our call who never even heard of us. We had n no LinkedIn connections in common and, uh, you know, those turned into great conversations. So, so, uh, to pay that back and, and anyone else who's curious about fundraising and going this down this path, you know, we are, uh, we're a resource. Well, that's so awesome, John. That's just literally the best thing that there is. Thanks for coming on and, and sharing your story. Hopefully this can, this can get the ball rolling on, uh, on you guys paying it forward to lots and lots of future searchers. It, it's exciting time and it's been, uh, it's been a great decision for us. So we're getting started, but uh, yeah, thanks for having us on. All right, guys. Thanks. Thanks for listening today. If you like moving up, 
the best way you can support us is by telling your friends and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks.